one of them in particular was the reason I left Google or a, a moment that told me it's time to go. So I was a, a Google digital media strategist, which means I consulted brands and agencies, and my job was to push them into the digital times faster with more clarity, which are big thing, themes of my book. Um, and so you know, I did so by consulting on the AdWords product. So I was the internal like product guide that a brand would have into AdWords. And I remember one day, everyone's gotten these videos sent to them by friends. You know those YouTube videos, John, that you watch like five times in a row because they're so good? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like I got one of those sent to me one day at work. This is like between 2008 and 2011. While you were at Google. Yeah, while I was at Google. And I remember I went home and I was like so damn excited about this video. And I, at the time I had three roommates in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I put the laptop down and I was like, you guys, I'm about to show you the greatest video of all time. And I like put the laptop down. I'm overhyping it to my friends. I open the laptop. I navigate to the URL. I'm about to see this video for like the 18th time that day. And as soon as I hit play, like right at the height of our anticipation together, a pre-roll ad like smacked me in the face. And we all knew it where was this before was going, the skip yeah. button, right? <laughs> yeah. So what ended up happening is I felt like a fool, but then my first thought in my head was, damn it, Eric, because Eric was my colleague at Google who had made this ad possible because <laughs> he sold this client on doing YouTube pre-roll ads. And I was like, oh, damn it, Eric. And then this like sinking feeling hit me, which I'll never, ever forget, which was, well, I have the same job at Google that Eric has, which means that there's probably one to one million people in the world having a more frustrating moment in their day because of work I did for a living. And I was like, that's not why I got into business. I wanna be, I wanna make things people actually want, not force my way into their lives. So I wanted to be the video, not the ad in front of the video. So if you followed Jay Akonzo for really any period of time, you would know that he's a guy who constantly rails against just mindlessly doing best practices, right? Because they quote unquote work. Um, and instead, using your own intuition and your own context to do better work. So uh, Jay actually has a new book out called Break the Wheel. And it's all about questioning best practices, honing your intuition and how to do more of your best work. So I had Jay on. He's a guy that I've known for a long time. Uh, he's a friend of mine. Jay and I actually have a lot in common. We're both from small towns in Connecticut. We're both Italian. We're both Yankees fans. We do have one pretty big difference, and that's our our allegiances to New Haven Pizza couldn't be any more different. Jay is a Sally's Pizza guy. I'm Pepe's Pizza all the way, but listen, we can't get them all right. So, But I had Jay on to talk about the book. We dive into a lot of the lessons in the book, as well as some of the stories that he tells about... Death Wish Coffee, Poopery, Parrot Man in the Caribbean, a lot of the remarkable stories that he tells on his podcast on Unthinkable Media, which is the company that he started after a, a really successful career in tech at Google, HubSpot, and Next Few Ventures. Um, so really excited about this one. If you haven't already checked out the book, highly recommend it. If you do have it, uh, feel free to follow along. Uh, if not, enjoy. Jay Akunzo's book is out today. Like... Uh, so we got you for a podcast recording, Jay, not just like on the week or the month, like on the day, like <laughs> the day the book comes out. So like, I circled this date twice, <laughs> once for the book and once to talk to you, my friend. Oh, yes. He's going to say that to like five other podcast hosts today. <laughs> but either way, I still appreciate it. So I, I have to lead up. Like, what does it feel like 
today, like obviously this has been months, years in the making, really, when, when you talk about your, your cause and, and, and everything you've been rallying for the past, what, three, four years? Is it more? Um, since Unthinkable? Oof. Since you launched Unthinkable as like a uh, block? Three, oh, three and a half years. Wow. Um, so what does it feel like today when it's, I know the pre-order was real and I know I remember seeing your picture on Instagram when you got like your first advanced copy, you held it in your hands, that was real. But today the book like comes out, you can get it on Amazon. What does it feel like today? Uh, so I'm an emotive guy because I'm Italian American. That's what we share. (laughs) And, uh, for the first time ever, I'm like, I can't pick up the one emotion and be like, it's this. So I'm tired. I'm excited. I'm vibrating from too much coffee. I got up way, way too early because I was thinking about all the things that could go wrong when I hit go on all these marketing marketing initiatives today. Uh, but mostly I'm just uh, I'm just taking a moment to feel proud about writing my first book because as a lifelong writer, content marketer, podcaster, and speaker, books are always looming as this big thing you want to create. So to have the first one go live and to actually talk to you literally three hours or four hours or whatever it is after I, I, I told the world to go and head over to Amazon. It's uh, it's an amazing feeling. Yeah, I can imagine. And you went the, the self-publishing route, right? Like to, yes, sir. How was, like, how was that whole experience? John, why, why didn't you uh, pitch this show to some kind of podcast network uh, to get permission to make your show? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's it's, it. It's, it's like we right. have this one last bastion in making stuff. Uh, of like, well, to do that, you have to go through a traditional organization. But for me, while there's many good people trying to advance that industry, the more authors I spoke to and the more I just like self-reflected, the more I realized like how not necessary it is. I think the lone reason you want to self-publish is either A, you get a massive advance. You're a, you know, huge, huge name. You're a celebrity, like legitimately, or you you are hell bent on getting into bookstores, which oh by the way, there's other ways to do it. Um, but that's it. You know, otherwise there's a lot of reasons I can give you that all amount to creative control for why I wanted to self-publish. Right, and everything you hear from published authors is obviously the entire process is a grind, right? Which I can imagine. So talk about what how what how long is it taken? First of all, and like. Uh, it, was it everything that you you read about, you hear about, you've talked to you know tons of other authors? Uh, undoubtedly, was was the experience going through it similar to what you expected, or a lot different? Describe that. So the hard part for me was actually something that maybe only a few people in my shoes would have experienced, and I'll get to that in a second. But let me just answer your question first. So I've been writing it in my head, uh, or in earnest, let's say, intentionally for. 10 months. Um, but like, I, I'm a big believer that the whole body of work, it all adds up, right? Like it all connects. You can't be like, Oh, that project took 10 months. Cause it's everything you're pulling from, from your whole experience leads sure. to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So it's a lifelong process of improvement. Um, but intentionally I was writing it since October of last year. And even before that, my show and my speaking. So my, my two businesses, John are, I'm a public speaker, Um, and I'm also, I create and host documentary series, whether audio or video for B2B companies, mostly SaaS. And so those two businesses allowed me to aerate all these ideas, publish different things when they were outside those two projects, you know, like articles and tweets and things like that. Basically I was getting ready for this, you know, sort of like passively. I was building other things and I was then mining those things for what worked best to pull over to the book and build on that. So the foundation was set long before I said, okay, this is my first Google Doc to write the book. Um, (laughs) Yeah, You know what I mean? So it's all connected. Um, But the the thing that was hardest for me, back to that little tease I gave you, 
was to get out of podcast voice and into writing voice because I've been spending so much time podcasting and doing narrative style podcasts that things like, you know, the very, the very easy example here is in a podcast because it's sort of a naked medium. It's just in your head. It's theater of the mind. I have to tell and show. You know, I have to do what they call signposting as a narrator because that's the style of show I do. I narrate. I do a lot of story. And a signpost is like, did you hear what John just said? He said this. Right, right. You should never do that in writing. <laughs> so I had to get out of tell. Yeah. I had to get out of tell mode and get back into show mode. And, and, and by show, I mean like write well, essentially. Right. And you're, you're probably one of the most consistent people in terms of of, of a personal brand for me because the podcast, everything you blog about, the things that you share on social, everything has been super consistent, I would say. Probably you said three and a half years, whenever it was that you launched. Even before that, um, you were in VC world, you were at HubSpot. Everything that you've always you, – you've never really changed, right? Like your your stance has always remained the same. Um, and, I, and I just love that, like the, the quality of the podcast. Now you're doing Thank stuff you. for Drift and and uh, Flipboard and, and um, I've heard your stuff with Tetra, which has been great too. And yeah, it, it's just like everything to me feels so consistent. And uh, I think that to me has been one of the most impressive things to watch, like your evolution from a, you know, I, I say blogger, I don't mean that in a derogatory term, but from a blogger into so, so much more, right? A uh, storyteller, a podcaster and... And, uh, so yeah, just, uh, just as a, as a fan and, and, and frankly a friend, it's, it's been fun to watch that, uh, that, that whole evolution. Cause I think there's so many personal brands, um, that just aren't as interesting and, um, they kind of just follow the, <laughs> follow the best practices. Right. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> you're, you're kind of the antithesis of that, which has been, which has been <laughs> well, fun. Thanks man. I think it all comes back to like when you make anything, a product, a piece of content, a show, a book, uh, or you're putting out lots and lots of projects as an individual, I think it's about like finding this Venn diagram overlap between what you love to tinker on and what the audience actually wants to receive. And I think so often in business, we start at the extreme for what the audience wants. We're like, we will do anything that they will buy or react to. And that has a lot of that's a slippery slope because what happens is you throw out your own sense of taste, your own differentiators, whether it's when I, when I say your own, it could be you as an individual or you as a team. Um, but you start doing anything because quote unquote, I have numbers to hit. And like, that's where clickbait headlines come in. Yeah. It's like, well, what, it works, but it works. It's like, <laughs> yeah, okay. But you know that that's really spammy and obnoxious. Yeah. I, I DM'd a bunch of people on LinkedIn. You know, I, I reached out to like thousands of people and I got some customers. Yeah. Okay. But you know, in your heart of hearts that you you actually annoyed the people that didn't respond or that responded angrily. Like we know these things intrinsically, but we're starting on one extreme of that Venn diagram, which is whatever the hell the audience responds to. And even then it's not well thought out. So for me, it's just about starting with what I want to make in the world and then trying to push into the other circle to find the overlap. Right. And that's the only explanation I can come up with for what was such a really nice thing for you to say. So I have, I have no, I have no other pithy or strategic thing to say. No, thank you. I guess. Yeah, you, you kind of led into it. So let's get into it. So that, as I mentioned, you've been rallying this cause. That, you know, damn the best practices. Lead with your intuition, your personal context, creativity. Do to do your best work for a long time now. Um, you know, th three and a half years on the blog, and then, like I said, even even before that. So I want to ask a really loaded question. And like, was there a moment, job, person, situation that inspired this work? Oof. 
I oh man, I can probably put dots on the map retroactively, right? If it's like I walked every single step, but I remember a few. Right. Uh, one of them in particular was the reason I left Google, or a, a moment that told me it's time to go. So I was a, a Google digital media strategist, which means I consulted brands and agencies, and my job was to push them into the digital times faster with more clarity, which are big thing themes of my book. Um, and so. You know, I did so by consulting on the AdWords product. So I was the internal like product guide that a brand would have into AdWords. And I remember one day, everyone's gotten these videos sent to them by friends. You know those YouTube videos, John, that you watch like five times in a row because they're so good? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like I got one of those sent to me one day at work. This is like between 2008 and 2011. While you were at Google. Yeah, while I was at Google. And I remember I went home and I was like so damn excited about this video. And I, at the time I had three roommates in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I put the laptop down and I was like, you guys, I'm about to show you the greatest video <laughs> of all time. And I like put the laptop down. I'm overhyping it to my friends. I open the laptop. I navigate to the URL. I'm about to see this video for like the 18th time that day. And as soon as I hit play, like right at the height of our anticipation together, a pre-roll ad <laughs> like smacked me in the face. <laughs> And we all knew where was this was going, skip yeah. button, right? <laughs> yeah. So what ended up happening is I felt like a fool, but then my first thought in my head was, damn it, Eric, because Eric was my colleague at Google who had made this ad possible because <laughs> he sold this client on doing YouTube pre-roll ads. And I was like, oh, damn it, Eric. And then this like sinking feeling hit me, which I'll never, ever forget, which was, well, I have the same job at Google that Eric has, which means that there's probably one to one million people in the world having a more frustrating moment in their day because of work I did for a living. And I was like, that's not why I got into business. I want to be, I want to make things people actually want, not force my way into their lives. So I wanted to be the video, not the ad in front of the video. But it and worked. So today, when you talk right? to, like it worked, it made, it made money, right? It worked. It people, oh, it just worked, right, quote unquote, right. just worked, right? That's the air quotes. And we would do things like say, yeah, search ad, you know, 1% click through rate is good. Banner ads, 0.01% click through rate. And I'm like, well, why not? Like, what we should be questioning this approach a little bit more. And lo and behold, content marketing became a thing, influencer marketing, account based marketing, all these, these things have happened since that time that people said, well, you know what? Maybe the foundation shouldn't be low probability events in marketing, maybe we can actually create an audience and create loyalty and, and trust with people because they choose to spend time with us in this era where the consumer has all the choice. So that's like one small example of, you know, way before I became a speaker and a podcaster and an author for a living, I was working in-house on a team and something just didn't sit right. But then I looked around the industry and everyone was shrugging being like, meh, that's how we do things around here. Right. You know, whether it's that moment or the forced lead forms and all the like hollow content that I published at HubSpot um, and other companies, you know, all these or in venture capital, my last in-house job, seeing all the ways startups pitched VCs because that's what someone else told them they had to do. It, you know, the, the whole punchline of the book is basically that, you know, finding best practices is not actually the goal. Finding the best approach for you is, and we don't talk about that enough. We don't know how to do that. You know, so what we end up doing is glomming on to trends or following some sort of prescription. And in this era of advice overload and expert overload, that's sure. even more dangerous. So side note, do you remember what the video was? I have racked my memory banks <laughs> trying to figure that out. You know what? I always forget what that I, – I think it was Kid President's pep talk. Oh, that was a classic. Yeah. That was a classic. 
Yeah, and I still have it bookmarked in a folder labeled "Inspiration" uh, in my in my browser for it's several like a reasons. Bunchy. What's that? <laughs> and for several reasons, it was a great for video. Several and one, yeah, it's, no motivation. It your, yeah, right. For um, sure. So uh, why? And you, you kind of just got into this, but another loaded question. You you, you get into a lot of the psychology uh, around why people tend to not just follow best practices, but um, I don't want to say take the easy way out, but 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 in 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 a business context, why people follow best practices, why they're reliant on best practices. So, from a psychological standpoint, which you get into, why do you think this happens? Why aren't people making better decisions? Because it's not, I, at least in my experience, speaking for myself, it's it's never it's never um, that people are setting out to piss people off, right, or exactly. do the wrong thing, right. So, why does this happen? So that that's the big conundrum that I started writing the book with in my mind, which is like, well, we all want to do our best work. We all have a disdain for hollow crap. So why is there so much commodity work out there? Why is there so much average stuff? And, and why are we settling for average results or copycat work? And, you know, so I so I did dug into a lot of the research of the book, uh, took me into the world of psychology and decision making. And there were three different psychological barriers to good decision making, um, each of which you can actually tie to an animal which is kind of interesting. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with the lizard brain, nothing to do with that. It's just that it happens to be represented by an animal. So let me give you one example, John. If you want to, we can dive into the other two. Right, right, right. But one, one very poignant one that we feel, I think, acutely today in the internet-enabled world that we live in, especially when we have pressure to grow, is called Pike Syndrome. So Pike Syndrome is essentially a feeling of powerlessness or helplessness in the face of repeated failure or change. So when you feel negativity or negative moments or stress over time, you fall victim to Pike Syndrome. The, the, the non-scientific term is learned helplessness. So we sort of learn as we get older that there's a right and a wrong answer to things. And then we head into the business world. And, and for the, the most complex and creative projects, we're still trying to find the quote unquote right answer. And in today's world where there's infinite right answers being published and sent to you all the time and infinite gurus and content and past precedent and data and documentation, like there's infinite right answers. So what could I possibly offer in my own unique situation? But in the book, I, I tell all these stories of quite a few SaaS companies actually, but it extends mm -hmm. well beyond that of people who observe something firsthand in their world. And they let what, what I call a first principle insight about their customer be the guide instead of some sort of expert idea or past precedent. And that led them to make decisions that look crazy if all you know is the best practice. But when you get into their story, it's like, no, 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 hold on. I just combated Pike syndrome. I just made a better sin, uh, decision because of this detail in my context that I rooted out. You know, and so that the change I'm asking people to make is to stop acting like experts and to start acting more like investigators. Death Wish Coffee is a story that you that you tell, which which I think uh, to to your point that you just made uh, uh, sort of visualizes that uh, principle pretty well, right? Uh, uh, he the the coffee was sent uh, aboard the International Space Station, which um, I, I don't know how many other coffee uh, <laughs> distributors are sending their their coffee into space. Um, but, uh, again, something that seemed crazy and, you know, obviously a big brand play, but 
he started out sort of uh, going against uh, sort of this institutional knowledge and here's what's accepted, right? By using coffee beans that well, – w- you're going to tell the story a lot better than I do. So, <laughs> yeah, do you want uh, – just just the, the example of Mike Brown and, and Death Wish coffee yeah. and how that fits yeah, into so, that Yeah, so Death Wish is billed as the world's strongest coffee. But as you cited this year, they actually sent their coffee to the space station. So you might want to change that if you're that company and be the <laughs> galaxy's strongest coffee. And they actually did riff on that a little bit in their marketing for that, that promotion. But – the reason it's a crazy type of coffee. So if you look at their logo as one example, or their unmotivational quotes that they share on Instagram, which are hilarious. So go check out Death Wish, Wish Coffee on Instagram. But they're the antithesis of a lot of different coffee companies. And it's not because they're trying to be a rebel for a rebellion's sake. It's not because they're trying to be creative and think outside the box. If you go back to their origins, this guy, Mike, was struggling to run a single location coffee business in Saratoga Springs, New York. And then by talking to customers, he pulled out this really interesting insight, which was that around that time, he didn't know this, but when he talked to customers, it was sort of revealed to them. Around this time, almost every city and town in North uh, upstate New York was losing population, except for two areas, Albany, the capital city, and Mike's area. Lo and behold, people were coming to that area for the influx of jobs that most towns lacked. You know, Saratoga invested heavily in infrastructure and small business education and initiatives at a, at a time when everybody had to go to a city. So all these people were arriving to be farm hands and stable hands at all these horse racing tracks they have there, entrepreneurs, construction workers. They were really hard charging individuals. And they came to that town for one specific reason, which was to work insanely hard. Now, If you live in a city, and if you're most coffee experts, you think you should brew something called Arabica coffee. Mm -hmm. It's like 70% of the world's crop. Arabica is delicious, aromatic, flavorful. It's amazing. Uh, Then there's this other type called Robusta, which is mostly frowned upon. It's like mostly used, John, in um, espresso in Italy. So our paisan out in Italy are going to (laughs) be drinking Robusta coffee, Robusto coffee, because it's like a shot for them. It's a transaction that they use. They stand up at an espresso bar in Italy, shoot their espresso and leave. Whereas in the States, it's a long drink. So it's artisanal, right? But Mike realized all these people coming into his shop that kept asking for stronger coffee, they viewed coffee as a transaction only. They were like, looking for a Red Bull or a five-hour in coffee form. So he actually used this type of bean that everybody advising him said, absolutely stay away from. And so that's like one example of a decision he made, among others, that broke from the convention, not because he was being clever, not because he wanted to be a rebel, but because he was being strategic and because he refused to settle for what everybody else said, quote-unquote, just works. And he investigated his specific context and that showed him the answer. And now he's got this like global brand. Right. Yeah. And sending his coffee into space. Uh, And that uh, global uh, galactic. Right. Can I say that? (laughs) Yeah. It's yeah. It sounds very star Warsian when you start saying that the the galaxy's strongest coffee. (laughs) Um, So yeah, there's a lot more uh, in the book um, uh, around the psychology of it uh, that that you should definitely check out. But another thing that you touch a lot on, and we're probably going to talk a lot more on is intuition. Um, And, 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 you know, kind of, uh, how it what it originates from like why it's important um so i I, this is this is such a general question but in terms of uh finding your personal context and doing your best work what role do you think uh one's intuition plays and are we ignoring it when we follow best practices um 
so much to the point where you're you're kind of training it out of yourself, right? You you learn not to trust yourself because that's just not the way things are. Yep, Pike syndrome is a good example of that, right? So, and the other two barriers to to making good decisions that I uncover in the book are as well. So, yep. there's a lot working against you to kind of see the world clearly right in front of you, which is what I think visionaries and creators do well. They don't see the future; they see the world more clearly and they make decisions accordingly. Um, and so. When you think about intuition, first of all, half the people listening are just rolling their eyes and the other half are like me where they hear the word and they're like, hell yeah, I -hmm. love creativity. It's all about intuition, but they're still misconstruing what it actually is. Think of it like this, John. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could walk into any scenario at work and have this like filter or maybe like a set of glasses, like a lens on your on your eyeballs that you can like see your context more clearly. And no matter what idea strikes you or advice comes your way, you could really quickly filter out which makes sense, which does not, and also to what degree. Like that's the goal when you make good decisions at work. It's not generalized advice or past precedent or trends. It's making the best decision for you. So imagine now that you have this ability to do that. To me, that's called intuition. And so in the book, we go through this journey in one of the chapters throughout history to kind of poke fun at all the ridiculousness that is people's attempt at defining and using intuition. And we distill it down to the bare bones, which is if you look at the root of the word itself, it comes from the Latin word intuere, which just means to consider. That's it, to consider. So consider that the best people you know, the best thinkers you know, their secret skill is the ability to consider the world around them. Instead of getting sucked away with all the flood of advice or that's how we do things around here kind of behavior, they are more critical in how they view the world in front of them and all their actions that they take. And so what we try to do in the book is actually turn intuition, that skill to contemplate or consider the world around you into a practical uh, tool. And we do that in a very simple way, which is uncovering six questions that we can ask each of those questions, by the way, very obvious and very simple, but ordered in the right way and addressing the right thing in your work. If you ask these questions in succession, all of a sudden you start to think more critically and you escape this endless cycle of best practices. Can you give us an example? So you don't have to go through all six, but okay. uh, these, these questions that you would you would ask yourself, like what? Uh, how, how would that look? Yeah, so uh, so one of my favorites, uh, one of my favorite stories is the story of Envision, which is a company a lot of people listening will probably know, a huge design software firm today, and they are renowned for creativity, and obviously because mm-hmm. they serve designers. One of the things they built that brought them into the public eye a little bit more fully in the SaaS and tech worlds was Design Disruptors, which is a giant and amazingly produced documentary film. Yeah, film. Unbelievable. Um, now a couple things are striking about this. Number one is they went from creating the usual video case studies, which are like so damn boring. Mm-hmm. It's like, of course, like, you know, right away when you start one of these videos, the person, the person had a problem. The company's product solved that problem. So go buy the company's product. Like nobody gives a shit about these terrible case studies and we need to rethink those. That's a, to- that's a totally different episode of your show. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> um, so, so they went from that to a, an hour long documentary film, which looks like a leap. And then you talk to them and they reason from first principles why it was the most logical thing they could do. So that's one thing that struck out was how the giant leap they took between one type of content and another seemed so strategic and safe for them. Um, the other thing about that project that struck, struck me was they never released it publicly online. 
which seems crazy. Like, can you imagine John working this hard on a project and then not publishing it like on the internet? <laughs> right. They did, they did screenings. If I, right. They did offline screenings in 450 locations worldwide. And that helped them actually double their user base in a single year. And the reason, again, the reason they did that was because they had this first principle insight about their audience, which is basically a basic but hard to reach truth about your situation. And so you have to cut through a lot of assumptions, a lot of things you assume you know to reach what they call in physics first principles. But if you reach those, you can build back up more original thinking from there in a way that seems right. logical to you, but others might not be able to explain it or they might dub you insane or risky because they're starting with the best practice or generality instead. So with Envision, Claire Bird was formerly a marketing manager there, and she was talking to customers and realized that every time she asked them questions about where design was heading, and this is product design, software product design, uh, all those people would get really defensive. And it was an odd behavior. It was like, why are they getting mm -hmm. so defensive about their roles in business overall? Well, it was because at the time, they didn't have a sense of identity. They didn't have a seat at the table. They felt underused or undervalued at least. And so she realized like Envision is not in the business of selling software tools or even selling how to design good products. Envision is in the business of creating community and identity for the entire industry. So they started marketing not to the the tactics, not to the tools, but to the career path, right? Right, And doing that, it makes total sense not to air something publicly if your goal is to build actual community, at least at first. So, so that story stands out. And the question people should ask to act like that is, is what is my first principal insight about my audience? And the way you can tell if you have one or not is to ask the second question, which pairs very nicely with this first one, which is who are my true believers? In other words, do I have a small number of people reacting in a big way to what I'm doing? Not a giant passive mm -hmm. number, not a bunch of retweets, but a small number of people reacting viscerally to your work as a sign you're on the right path, even if that path takes you away from the convention. And so what is your first principle insight and who are your true believers? That's an example of a trigger question, which sparks your investigation and a confirmation question, which ensures you've gathered evidence to head in a direction that's unconventional, according to the norm, but right. strategic for you. How often do you hear uh, pushback, or frankly, maybe even we could classify it as an excuse around resources, budget? I don't, I don't, ha I'm not envision, right? Like I, I can't, yep. I, I can't afford to be create. You know, like it's crazy as it sounds. How often do you hear that um, as pushback? All, I mean, all the time. And I would, I would actually say two things to address it. So the first is if your knee-jerk reaction is constantly, but my boss, like that's a real problem that you need to look in the mirror and address right. yourself because <laughs> I, I've never met anybody who's done great work that uh, they waited for somebody to grant them the permission to do it. Right. So you know, it's like you find a way, you find a better boss, you start something yourself. Like those are the three options, but my boss is a lazy excuse that pushes the responsibility on others. Yep. Now, even if you have the right mentality, even if you're like, okay, I'm on board with this idea that best practices pose some problems, I'm going to think for myself. I'm on board with the idea that intuition is about investigating your context, asking the right questions and finding answers firsthand instead of secondhand. Even if you're all on board with the, what I would say is a very logical process laid out in the book, you're still going to run into roadblocks. And so the the final questions that we should ask each other 
and ask ourselves are what are my constraints and how might I expand? And what I, why I propose these questions in the book is to combat this very strange behavior we have. And you and I probably share this, John, because we like to make stuff. Um, when we propose an idea and someone says, okay, our reaction is to be like, oh, good, I have permission. I'm going to go do it. But the response we should have is to be like, all right, boss, client, team, self, what are my constraints here? Which is kind of shocking for a lot of people to try because they almost want to like skirt around it and not acknowledge that they have limited resources or time or budget or, or whatever, a specific goal. Like we'd prefer to pretend that for a moment we have creative freedom. But when I was doing the research for the book, I found all these psychological studies uh, at various universities that suggested that that constraints are actually your strengths when you're trying to be creative. You know, all these studies routinely find that when you know clear as day what the walls of the box are and you can then innovate within those walls inside the box, you come up with more ideas and better ideas. Not to mention you're more organized, which is amazing. Like imagine coming up with more ideas, more effective ideas and be more organized at the same time. And so where we get into problems, John, is not that we don't have permission it's that we don't know it's the opposites we don't know our limitations we don't actually know from the boss what the wall is and so we run into an invisible wall and we get frustrated because we didn't know that was there because we didn't articulate it up front with our teams and then we're like that boss is terrible or that client is awful right so if you're a leader set the walls with your team overtly and they will be more creative but you have to set them overtly and up front and then and this is key once you build the box stay the hell out of the box. <laughs> like most leaders jump in and mess around or try to change the walls and that frustrates teams and frustrates creativity and it leads to a further feeling of learned helplessness. On the other side, if you're a practitioner, if you're a solo contributor, you still have a role to play. You have to ask for constraints up front. You have to be like, I want to know what my limitations are here. Like my business building documentary series, my nightmare scenario is someone says, I have unlimited budget and no ideas for what we want to do. <laughs> Pitch me your best idea, Jay. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell to do with that idea, right? But so, so the punchline, John, is I don't think creative freedom works. I don't even think it exists because we start to install our own constraints whenever we make decisions, like organically and subconsciously. Right, right. So embrace that you do have limitations, but the keys are to know what they are, plain as day, up front, and then treat yourself like a lifelong learner where the goal is to win within the box and then go to the next one and the next one and the next one. Give up this idea that you're ever going to have creative freedom because not only is that false, it doesn't actually work. Right. I mean, for, even from a management perspective, in my experience, people get frustrated when they feel like they have free creative reign. They get lost. They're Isn't not that bizarre? They're not sure it's what the goals are. Yeah. They don't really know. What, they'll get into it and it sounds exciting at first, but you'll inevitably get the questions back. Like, what's the what are we trying to what what's the purpose of this again like how do i know if this is effective and or and it it breeds much more frustration than the other way around like you said if you stay out of it which which is which is the hardest part probably for for a lot of leaders um you brought up something that was interesting that i wanted to dig into for a sec so and you you do these uh documentary style episodes for for other brands we mentioned before drift tetra so give us an example so when they come to you they already have an idea of they're they're not just pitching you jay love your work what can you do for us? So 100%. Like, like Tetra, for example. What, what did, when, when Tetra came to you, what, was the, what were they looking to do? Like, what were the limitations that, that you sort of were able to come up with that show? 
Yeah, I mean, like Tetra is a really small startup, and so we had to come up with like ultimately what their big idea was behind the business because they didn't have good market articulation of what they care about. Uh, actually, arguably, a really good example of this is is Drift. So I'm creating a ten part documentary series, which is season one of a of a show called Exceptions for Drift. And the idea here is, you know, there's so there's a few limitations. Number one, it's about B two B companies. Great. I just whittled down the world of potential stories into a subset of the overall business world. Um, but we also articulate in the show how brand today is arguably the opportunity for demand gen, for growth, because we have feature parity. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows the basics of the how-tos, and there's ample best practices as my book sort of uh, you know goes into and, and start, tries to tear down. But because brand is the differentiating factor, the ones who have done it for a while and seem to be best at it appear to be the exceptions in the B2B space, which historically didn't value brand. So we profile companies like Gusto, Wistia, Envision, First Round Capital, Zoom, um, and there's about 10 total. And so what I start, what I try to do is start there. What is the big idea and who are we trying to speak to and talk about? And then I break the show into three component parts because a series can get away from you really fast. It's a big, big asset. But all a show is, uh, is the combination of three things, a show level concept, an episode level structure, and then talent. So the talent piece here was really easy because I'm the host. Um, <laughs> very, very easy for me to be the host right. and know what to do. Right. But in this case, I had to articulate, well, what's our structure? For the episode, because it could be anything to talk, tell a story about Gusto, a billion dollar plus company, and to talk to their their co-founder and a practitioner and also a customer. We talked to three people for this show. Like, how the hell am I going to structure that? And so I actually go and look at other shows I admire from way outside the business world and try to document what's their framework. How do they come at these big, meaty topics to make it enjoyable and succinct? And then I try to write that down and meld together my own sensibilities and the new topics of this new show and out comes the episode level structure, which is minute by minute, what they call in TV blocks and beats. So the blocks are statements of intent for a section of the show. And then the beats are the moments you need to capture for that section to make sense. And so now I have a restricted view of how to tell this story. And, and a beautiful thing happens, John. Not only do I have a way to execute, but I actually become more creative because I have a basis off of which I can riff and I can rip out one section and apply it in a different way to this new brand because now, okay, this new idea popped to mind and I can innovate with purpose. So again, it's back to establishing constraints and actually embracing those when the goal is to be creative, not trying to have creative freedom. And I love that you brought up uh, sort of looking at shows way outside the business world because uh, I want to get into some of the more uh, elements that are personal to you, why, why, why podcasting as a medium for you. What, so, but what are, I'm interested to hear, like, what are some of the shows uh, I know just from, you know, just, just from knowing you comedians and cars getting coffee is one that you had talked about. I saw you tweeted about the shop, which is a new HBO miniseries uh, with LeBron James, oh, so um, good. which I, I think has there only been one so far. There's only been one, but that's something where, so what people see on the outset is LeBron, some other athletes and other performers and entertainers, including Jon Stewart, which is a really interesting wrinkle. Right, right, right. Snoop Dogg, yeah. Yeah, Snoop Dogg. (laughs) So in a a barbershop, and they're just sort of riffing, right? Now, obviously, everything is magic when it's edited well. Um, That's where the magic happens. 
but it's it looks like a mess of people just riffing. And now I'm looking at that like, so not only do I want to do it because it's awesome, that style, like who in the marketing and tech world can I like put in that room? But I'm like, okay, what role is Jon Stewart playing? He's kind of an outsider in that room. Like he's not, he's the only person that's not African-American, number one. And he's also the inquisitor. Like he asks basic but important questions to spur conversation and the others are mostly riffing and having a fun conversation or like shouting to be heard Stewart's a little bit more reserved and and like he's like a sniper he's like I'm giving you my question or my comment and then I'm back out um so like okay we need somebody if I ever do this show in the brand in the brand or tech world we need someone who plays that role so, mm-hmm. so that's what I try to do when I see both shows or consume books or just anything that I feel is entertaining and awesome. I'm like, what is the meta level and how do I extract that documented and then try to build something in the business world with that idea or angle in mind? Right. What, what are, what are, what's your short list of other shows that you enjoy, uh, that, that you go to for inspiration at times? Oh my God. So, so, so I have to correct you because you said short list. (laughs) (laughs) I have a Trello board and on one of the lists, it's just like shows I'd like to create. Um, so dr- I'll give you Exceptions, which is live running in Drift's podcast feed. I stole the framework from a show called Binge Mode, which talks about um, mostly fantasy shows. So shows like Harry Potter and where they got their start was Game of Thrones. I stole an element, a bunch of elements from them and adapted them and tweaked it and refined it. Um, I really like this idea of... Uh, Mike Rowe has a podcast. He's the former host of Dirty Jobs on Discovery. Mm-hmm. He's got a show called The Way I Heard It. It's like six to ten minute, fully scripted, just him doing a read. And he talks about the backstory you didn't know about something you do. And he only reveals the thing you know at the end. So at the very end, he's like, and that was how George Washington. And you're like, what? <laughs> so I want to do a show like that about companies who pivot. You know, like Slack came out of a game. So it's like we can tell the backstory of all these interesting projects or people or businesses and not reveal who they are to the point where we mask the the name. So if it was a story about me, I would say Jason instead of Jay. So then at the end, I would reveal the thing. So so from those two shows to, you know, I want to do something called uh, Creative X-Rays where I put a lens on a project and, and talk about the meta level as we are right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a public speaker. I want to do a show called Bag Full of Dongles. Because that's really what the job is. You, you truck around the world and it, your goal is to have – you need all the dongles and the, all the equipment. And So, that, yeah, I just have all these half-baked ideas. And they really start with me being like, I like that other show that has nothing to do with business. What would that look like if I adapted it to the business world? And not only is it fun for me, it speaks to a very real trend in marketing, which is the job is no longer to just acquire attention. The job is to hold it. And the whole yeah. that you can't game that system. You have to genuinely entertain and educate and hold people's attention, right? So, so that's that's why I go way outside the echo chamber because other people are better at doing this than marketers. Well, bag full of dongles is is a A plus name. So uh, eventually we'll hear that. Uh, and, and you're you're doing a lot of speaking, obviously before the book, but uh, I can imagine your schedule might get a little more hectic now. Are, are you still enjoying it? Yeah, I am. And it's fun to be a counterweight to all the people who get on stage and just sort of teach the how-tos. You know, to do a keynote, you're you're there to perform and you're there to say, you know, let's rethink this or let's let's think of it through this new lens. You know, for me, if I were ever to give a speech on podcasts, which I never really do, but it would be about holding attention instead of mm-hmm. about how to make a good podcast. So, you know, for me to promote the book, it's been 
on the road once or twice a month, uh, different cities. It's pretty exciting, also pretty draining. But, you know, I'm really trying to help people make the best possible decisions for them and their teams and their customers. In other words, for their situation, regardless of the best practice, because that's what matters. Right. And in podcasts, like this is this is something that I've wanted to ask you about. Uh, you were somebody who obviously cut his teeth. I mean, I think you, you went to school for journalism, right? We have, we also have that in common. Yeah. I was a sports journalist, uh, wannabe. Right. As was I. And then I quickly learned that former athletes were going to be taking that job, uh, as (laughs) analysts and not so much writers, but, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a whole nother episode. But, um, so you, you obviously kind of cut your teeth in content, writing blog posts, uh, some long form stuff podcasts what what sort of sparked that as an inspiration from you and, and why is that like your medium like it you're you're great at it you, you, it's clear that you enjoy it and you're very passionate about it like what is it about podcasting as a medium that sort of drew you to it and has kept your attention to it this whole time so my whole thing and everything i do is that i want to make other people feel something that doesn't mean sappy and saccharine. It could mean fun and funny or something in between. That's, you know, maybe like a little moment of questioning what they thought they knew. But I want people to feel stuff. And if you look at the business world, so much content about the working world, whether it's career advice, that is whitewashed pablum or uh, business knowledge where your show is very smart, but it's like sticking a textbook down my ear like this shit needs to be nutritious and delicious, right? <laughs> Together. So podcasting or showmaking overall, it's like intimacy that scales, right? You have this thing that feels like it's yours. I mean, what do we do when we talk to our loved ones or friends? We talk about shows we love. And podcasting is a very easy example of this because it's a newer medium. And if you're in tech, like a lot of people listening, it's part of that world. But it's like intimacy that scales. So you feel something because it's voice. And if it's a well-engineered story in particular, you feel even more things. So I saw this joy that I that people had in making it. I wanted to experience that. I wanted to make people feel. But then the market trend kicked in. And I'm like, wait a second. This has real ramifications for businesses today. Because if you're in acquisition mode constantly, and you're like, I got to rank more on search. I got to churn out more pieces. I got to acquire new, new, new all the time. It's like digging a hole in dry sand as a marketer. Mm-hmm. And nothing you do sticks. But if you have a genuine audience that pays attention to you over time and they trust you, subscribe to you, like you, and most importantly, stick around over time, they share you, they come back to you, everything gets easier. Everything, you know, new customer acquisition gets easier through word of mouth. Um, upsells, upsales, get that all gets easier. Upgrades, um, everything gets easier when people pay attention to you over time, not just one moment in time or seven disconnected ads they saw in the hopes that they purchase. So if you believe that that's the shift we're living through from acquiring attention to the new mandate, which is hold it, podcasts are right there with video as the ways you can do that if you know how to make a show instead of just yet another podcast. Right. That's that's great. I love that. It, <laughs> the shit needs to be nutritious. That that's that that's that's great. And uh, and delicious. That's the key. Everyone's <laughs> out there being like, we got to be smart. We got to have the how tos. It's got to be yep. sound, right? But if but no business. I have a friend Jay Bear who's a great author and speaker mm-hmm. in his own right, and he's like, no business has ever stood out by being competent. 
Like no one's ever been like, let me tell you about this perfectly adequate, smart experience that I had. No, like you need to be remarkable. You need to be worthy of time. You you cannot game a system. There's no algorithm that you can play off of, right. you know, like all the hucksters on LinkedIn and all that crap going on right now. Like you have to genuinely know how to serve your customer and all the mechanics of holding attention. So part of that has to be nutrition. It has to be smart and good. But the other part has to be deliciousness. It has to be entertaining and worthy of more time. I love that. Jay, thanks for carving out time on what is a, a, a big day for you. Uh, just as a fan watching, uh, couldn't be happier. Can't wait to, to get into it more. Um, but yeah, c- congrats on, on all the success, the launch of the book. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, where do you, where do you go from here? Like, so, so, uh, when's the sequel? I'm kidding. The book just came <laughs> where out. do I, where do I go? I go, uh, <laughs> I go to my favorite bottle of bourbon. I go to my back porch and then I go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so Jay, thanks a lot for carving out the time. I have to ask you before you leave, and this is going to date the episode, but that's fine. What's going to happen this week with the Yankees? Uh, this is the first year in a long time where we did so damn well to have this win total and the home run records and the talent we have. And I still feel like the wild card game is a coin flip. <laughs> it, well, that's what it is, right? It's a one game playoff. No, I know, but I, I don't feel confident. This really could go either way. It, yeah. And you're, you're in New York now, right? Uh, you, yeah, I'm just, I live just outside of it. It's the first time I can wear a Yankees hat and not feel like I have to run away. I, I used to live in Boston. So I would wear my Yankees hat backwards on jogs because I would run faster because I was scared for my life. <laughs> there it is. There's the hack. There's the hack for, for getting your, your mile per minute down. <laughs> All right, Jay. Thanks a lot, man. We'll talk thanks, to you brother. soon. Thanks, brother. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.